we all come into this world with, with so little time. So you're allowed to make the most of it. It's a good thing to want to be happy and to act to be happy. Welcome to Professional Profiles, a podcast where I interview industry experts to understand their jobs, learn about their journeys to success, and uncover the strategies they've used to find it. Today, I'm so lucky to speak with economist, best-selling author, and COO at Momenta, Matt Cook. Join us as Dr. Cook shares his experience and gives advice on finding purpose and meaning in one's life. This is a truly extraordinary interview, and I really hope you enjoy. Well, first of all, thank you so much, Charlie, for having me. And I just wanted to say, I think it's really neat what you're doing with this podcast. Um, I'm currently the chief operating officer of sister companies, Money Intelligence and Momenta. Uh, I get to work closely with a dear friend of mine who I've known since college, which is a lot of fun. I also take writing and music as serious second professions, storytelling, is a big theme in my life. I like to tell stories with words in books, uh, musical notes in compositions, and sometimes with numbers also. So with all these different things on your plate, how would you define success for you? And how has your definition of success changed over time? I appreciate the fact that you asked first about defining success uh, before you asked about achieving it. I think that's very smart. Success means different things to different people because we all have different values. I would say um, some higher level values are objective values that we all share, like reason, purpose, and self-esteem. But there are, are some lower level things that are more subjective, like what sort of music you prefer, uh, what you like to do in your free time. I would define success by going to the highest level of values first. A successful person to me is someone who uses reason to identify his or her values, who acts uh, purposefully to achieve those values, uh, who believes one's happiness is a worthwhile pursuit, believes that achieving that happiness is always possible in this world, and acts doggedly to reach that happiness. I, I measure the success of a person more in terms of beliefs and actions than outcomes. Uh, I believe we are what we think and a person with good ideas and a clear, rational philosophy is already successful. And it's just a matter of time and effort before those good ideas lead to the achievement of whatever makes them happy. I, I would, I would say maybe 15, 20 years ago when I was a much younger guy, I probably thought of success more in terms of outcomes, more in terms of achieving a desired result. I have realized that outcomes follow naturally from having good ideas and that clear, rational philosophy that I talked about. So I define success now much more in terms of uh, what a person thinks and believes. Uh, so I think to me, a successful person is someone who I very clearly identifies his or her values and works to achieve them. And that, that already makes someone successful. And then it's just a matter of time before they actually observe uh, the success by achieving those values. That's just a matter of time and effort. 
How do you manage being the COO at Momenta and also being an accomplished composer and a published author? Sure. Well, life is a smorgasbord. Some people say, I'm going to go to the buffet table and I'm just going to try the muffins and not me. I want to try everything from the fondue to the hams to the shrimps to the cupcakes. And one of the challenges of coming back from a smorgasbord is balancing the plate. You have to layer everything so it all fits. Uh, life is the same way. And sometimes it means being stubborn, keeping at a project when there's something else you'd rather be doing. Uh, it also means staying organized, uh, keeping to-do lists, uh, writing down your thoughts before sleep. And that helps you avoid those moments of sheer panic when you think you're going to drop a plate. So I, I'm also fortunate to be working with uh, very talented individuals and teams uh, and, and that certainly helps a lot as well. So you have developed multiple different intellectual pursuits in your writing and in your composing. How would you say that creativity plays a role in your life? And how would you give advice about ideas and creativity? <laughs> that is a great question and a really tough one. Where does creativity come from? What kind of advice could a person give about creativity? That's one that is just very hard to teach. I think the best advice I could give, or it's not really advice, I think it's more of a statement, is that when working on a project, I've noticed that almost everything that I see throughout my day somehow becomes relevant to the project at hand. It's like everything that I see I relate to the project. Maybe it's a book. Maybe it's a story that I'm working on. Every person somehow becomes a potential character in the story or could influence the personality of a character. Every place I go to, every element of that place somehow could inform the settings. And so I think that the generalization of that idea is to keep active-minded about everywhere you go and everything you do and try to find the relevance with what you're working on. Um, it's about making connections. I think creativity is largely the measure of interconnectedness in one's brain, in one's mind. Uh, and so I think that more creative people tend to go through life making those connections to whatever projects or endeavors they're currently working on. They see the relevance of things. They see the educational value in those things. So I think that to translate that into advice, it's to, it's to try to emulate that as much as possible. Do you think that creativity can be worked on and improved, or do you think it's born with, it's an innate characteristic? I believe that everything can be worked on and improved, just about everything. I think that is the optimist in me. No doubt some people are born with more connections than others. We don't understand how consciousness works very well. The brain is largely a mystery to us. But I do think that there is a part that is just sort of the natural package that we come into life with. However, I am very optimistic about what people can do to improve themselves in any particular skill. So I certainly believe that regardless of one's package at birth, that it's, it's 
very possible to uh, achieve great improvements through uh, purposeful effort. So do you think hard work is one of the best metrics of personal development and how like that's one of the dictators of how far someone can go is how much they're willing to work? I, th- I think it's that, but it's also thinking very carefully about where that effort is directed. Um, a lot of people work very hard, but might spin their wheels. And it could be that they haven't necessarily thought about what really makes them happy. Uh, it could be that they haven't spent enough time on uh, strategy or evaluating risks. Um, so I don't think that it's the only component. I think it's it's necessary, but insufficient. It, it, the work needs to be directed in the right place. And there needs to be enough thought behind the why um, and, and what values are being achieved. Education has definitely played a large role in your life, correct? It certainly has. Um, but I would say this, education comes in many forms. There's schooling, which is, of course, very important to cover the fundamentals of how the world works and learn about certain academic topics, perhaps take very deep dives as uh, graduate students do into a particular topic. Uh, but it's important to recognize the many other ways that we learn through life. And that's not necessarily always part of an academic curriculum. Uh, to me, travel is a very important education, perhaps the most important education a person can get. Um, and I, I would say, going back to academic schooling, I think that there is often an important missing piece, and that is context. I think that students, to really feel connected to a subject, need to understand how is this going to be helpful to me in my life. Uh, a lot of students don't have an answer to this necessarily on their own because they're learning the subject. Uh, and I think that in, in many situations, teachers, professors um, would do right by the students to begin with that context. Otherwise, studying math or biology or whatever it is could seem pointless. So I think that the context is very important to make, um, to help students realize how is this going to benefit, how is this knowledge going to benefit me in my life? We're often taught that knowledge is an end in itself. And I believe that wholeheartedly, but it's often very difficult for young people to see that. So I think that starting with a more concrete connection to how is this topic, how is this knowledge going to help me uh, or perhaps giving context uh, to connect that knowledge, that field with other aspects of one's life uh, could be very helpful. So just like you mentioned earlier, having a value system or kind of knowing the why behind some actions, you're saying that that translated to the schooling system would provide a much deeper education and more motivation to succeed in school? I do believe that, yes. I think that it would bring subjects to life. I think that you would see a lot more curiosity uh, and a lot more motivation because students would have the why. Better than just starting out with formulas on the board uh, or by, by opening history books, 
I think that there should be an understanding of what is the value here and how is this going to enrich my life? You mentioned that traveling has played a pivotal role in your education, not just academic education, but your actual real life applicable education. What have you learned from traveling to over 160 countries in every state? That is such a great question, Charlie. Thank you. Uh, I do believe that travel is one of the best educations that a person can get. And travel for me boils down to knowledge and memories. When traveling, you learn about other people, histories, uh, systems, beliefs, geographies, and some of that knowledge can help you practically, but all of it can also be enjoyed for its own sake. The knowledge itself is fulfilling. Um, and sometimes there's knowledge that can help you refine your own set of values, uh, your appreciation of what you have in your life, or even your own sense of purpose. Now, you can learn a lot from the internet too. You can look up pictures and read things. Um, in fact, it's more efficient if you can just call up Google Images and look at pictures of places. It's a lot less expensive. You can read Wikipedia articles. Um, so I think an important next question is why actually go there? Uh, and I would answer that by analogy. So let's, let's talk about an analogy with music. Let's say that you're an experienced musician and you've spent your whole life reading notes. If someone hands you a piece of music that you've never heard before, you can look at the music with your eyes, you can stare at it, you can study it. And in your brain, you can actually imagine what it sounds like if you know how to read music. But I promise you that no matter how long you stare at those dots on the page with your eyes, nothing will ever make you feel the same way about that music as hearing it played by an orchestra or a band with all the instruments coming together and vibrating in your ears. I would say imagination and perception are different experiences. And that's um, an important distinction. There's an important place for both of them. Directly perceiving things is how we form basic concepts to begin with. And the more experience that we have directly, the easier it is for us to understand things in theory. Uh, so understanding the world, it has many practical reasons. It's also joy in itself. To me, that's the end goal. And the memories formed in the process through direct experience are some of the greatest riches that I have and think that anyone could bring to the grave. So you're an accomplished author that has written in many different genres, ranging from fiction to entrepreneurship. And your newest book, Slide of Mind, is completely different and out of those genres. Could you briefly talk about it? Yes, Slide of Mind. Uh, it's a book on paradoxes. It, it talks about uh, 75 or so paradoxes in math, physics, and philosophy. But yes, I do uh, have a little bit of other nonfiction and also plenty of fiction. Fiction tends to be what I spend the most time on. It's my, my ultimate joy, but Slide of Mind was a great deal of fun as well. Um, I've been writing my whole life. At six, I already knew that I wanted to tell stories. Uh, my family was taking a road trip through Europe, uh, and I was in the back seat, sitting in the car, looking out at the mountains, the shores, the forest, the castles, and I began drawing maps of fantasy worlds, naming places in those worlds and naming specific people and characters in them. Uh, my love of 
wizards and knights uh, gave rise to a fantasy novel called Tovar's Enchantment that I spent many years, many adolescent years working on and finished and then rewrote again a much longer version of it uh, in my early teens. Uh, so I was really writing all the time, thinking about these worlds and these characters rather obsessively, but it was, it was just pure joy for me. I loved doing it and I loved spending time with these characters in their worlds. Um, a few years later, I became more interested in writing as well as reading real world stories, less fantasy, more about real world. Uh, espionage became something that I, uh, that I really loved. Um, but I think ultimately the draw for me in writing has always been the power of the story to dramatize and communicate values, ideas, and principles. What inspired you to write your book, Slide of Mind? Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you for asking. Um, I, I grew up, uh, I grew up doing magic. So, uh, yeah. I was a member of the the Junior Society at the Magic Castle. It's a uh, club, wonderful, world-renowned club of magicians in, uh, in Hollywood. And uh, my grandfather growing up was always pulling coins out of my ear. Uh, my father was interested in magic, and so I got into magic as well. And I guess I just loved the idea of the puzzle solving. Um, now, magic tricks... The, the, the puzzle solving has to do with concretes, right? So you uh, are pulling a rabbit out of a hat, you're making a coin appear or disappear or whatever it is. It involves real tangible things. Uh, and then as I, as I got a little bit more into uh, mathematics and philosophy and, and physics, I realized that you could still have all the wonderful aspects of puzzle solving, but the puzzles didn't have to involve tangible things. It could just be uh, mere thought experiments that produced the same illusion of contradiction. And that's exactly what a paradox is, is the illusion of contradiction, the illusion of, of something that can't actually happen in the real world. Uh, and so I made a study of many of these paradoxes and started seeing connections between them, uh, similar principles that could be used to unravel them. Uh, and just found a lot of uh, a lot of fun and a lot of joy and frustration at times because there are some hard ones untangling some of these paradoxes, um, and eventually decided to to write a book that uh, that would go through some of the most interesting ones that I came across. Could you give an example of a paradox? You know, um, that's that's a good question. It, it's funny. Oftentimes when I talk with friends about the book, they'll ask the very same thing. Can you give an example? And I've learned <laughs> that it very quickly goes down a rabbit hole uh, as soon as we get into trying to untangle it. So I'll, I'll be happy to answer your question, but I would suggest we avoid the rabbit hole and I'll leave it to your listeners to look this up on their own if they'd like to. <laughs> so... um the one that I would suggest is, is an ancient paradox. It's called the liar's paradox. Uh, and it started in ancient Greece. I, I won't go through the whole history of it, but I'll just sum it up by, by saying the statement is as follows. 
this statement is false. Now, why is that paradoxical? Well, this statement is false. If it's false and it's claiming to be false, then it must be true. But if it's true that it's false, then it must be false. So which is it? It seems to be self-refuting. Um, and it seems to be problematic that we can form such a statement in language because it's, it's not merely saying something that's factually incorrect. It's not like it's saying the sky is, is red or that objects go uh, up instead of down uh, when they're under the influence of gravity. Those, those are factually incorrect statements, but this is deeper than that. It's actually saying something that appears to be inherently grammatically contradictory. And that problem, that paradox has actually puzzled uh, mathematicians and philosophers and a great many thinkers for uh, multiple millennia. Uh, there is still not even a consensus on the best resolution. There have been many resolutions put forward. Uh, so I would encourage listeners who are interested in getting into paradoxes, check out the liar's paradox, uh, which is certainly you can read about it in the book, Slide of Mind, but you can find plenty on the internet as well. How would you say you stay motivated and resilient during challenging times throughout your career? That's a great question. Um, how do you stay motivated in, in challenging times? Well, I, I would say, I think after a while, you just have to realize that setbacks and failures are part of life. You have to get to a point where you don't lament every single one. There will be so many setbacks that you just don't have time to. You just have to think, okay, I know this is part of the road to where I'm going. The road's just a little longer and harder than I thought it was. Uh, when you're trying to turn some dream into a reality, lots of people along the way will close the door on you and they'll say no. There may be gatekeepers who say no. I think the key learning, the key takeaway is recognizing that it's just part of the process and you simply don't have time to worry about each instance of failure or rejection. You build up an attitude that setbacks happen, but they're insignificant in the big scheme of things. They may feel important now, but ultimately with enough time and effort, you're in the driver's seat and you can get wherever you're going. Failures often, they always seem big. <laughs> they always seem big at the time. They always feel like they're of epic proportions uh, because whatever it was you were after, whatever it was you were chasing, that's, that's the important thing that's of value to you. And if you fail in getting there or there's a door closed or some gatekeeper says no or whatever your plans were that don't work out, it, it always feels uh, like a, like a really big, uh, you know, epic, epic proportion kind of, uh, event in your life. I think the, the challenge, but the key is to be able to zoom out, to zoom out to 30,000 feet, to look at the whole timeline of your life and realize this setback may seem big right now when I'm this age in this particular year. But the further I zoom out, if I think about my future self looking back, that future me is going to look back on this moment and consider it to be far less significant than I consider it now. That may be a difficult perspective to have, but I think that it's an important one. That ultimately the failures 
are significant only in the lessons they teach about what didn't work. Uh, that is the, really their only significance. They're not significant in any other way. How would you say that you f- handle setbacks and failures? Do you have an example of a time there? you experienced a setback and how you overcame it? Well, certainly. I think, I think though, that it's the, rather than get into any particular examples, it's, it's the same idea. It's that ability to zoom out and, and think about myself 10 years or 20 years later. If I'm going to be, if I, if I feel I've just had a setback, as crushing as it may feel now, putting myself in my, in the shoes of, of myself 20 years from now, will I look back on this moment and still be lamenting it? Or will I have triumphed over it perhaps many, many years ago, <laughs> perhaps so many years ago that it's not even really a memory anymore? I think that that is really what it boils down to is being able to have the perspective to be able to zoom out. Uh, that zooming out ability is something that young people often struggle with because they haven't lived enough. They haven't been aware enough uh, to have ever had that sort of retrospective perspective. Um, All they've ever known is just a few years. But the more time you've had, I think the more you realize that when you look back at the things that crushed you many years ago, those things just aren't important anymore. They go away. And so when you're in the moment experiencing a failure and you've had some of them, you're able to, to have that perspective more easily and you just keep going because you know that that failure is not necessarily significant. So using that tool of zooming out that you just talked about, how do you think kids can sort of zoom out and look at the big picture for their future and develop and find something that they're passionate Another great question. And I, and I just want to say, Charlie, how much I appreciate that you're asking a lot about ideas. These are big idea questions. They're not necessarily concrete questions about how do you do X or how do you do Y. They're very abstract level. And I think that they show a lot of insight. So I just wanted to uh, applaud you a moment for that. Very, very good question. Um, so this question is, how can a young person zoom out? Um, and perhaps how can a young person find something that he or she is passionate about? Well, I think the answer to that is probably exposure. I think the more things that you try, the more things you can discover. Um, So it's really about trying as many things as possible, going to the buffet table and trying the muffins, trying the shrimp, trying the steaks uh, and all the veggies, trying things once and not necessarily feeling like you have to try them again. Uh, but exposure is how you discover. And the more you discover, the more you find what you like and what you don't like. Um, I think that people should spend as much as they can their early years finding out what really does interest them, discovering their values, their hierarchy of values, um, and also realizing which are sort of the lower level values, what they might like to do in their free time. Uh, versus higher level values, which are things like rationality, uh, reason, purpose, self-esteem. Those, I think, are uh, you know, three core values that a person can at, at that very high level. 
So it's important, I think, also when zooming out to um, be able to put one's values on a hierarchy of objective and important for everybody, important all the time, to uh, maybe just important for me. So outside of school and travel, even just say, for example, this this summer, how can kids go out and acquire knowledge of different things and just have new experience, new things and learn more about the world around them? That That's a really good question too. And the tough part is so much of curiosity has to come from within. And I think that if a person, if a young person wants to learn more, they will just do it on their own. And if, and if somebody isn't by a certain age, a particularly curious person, it's very hard to teach curiosity to someone. I do think that it's very easy to kill curiosity. Um, I think that actually most people come into this world, most children are very curious. They want to know how everything works. They're constantly asking, if you, if you listen to kids, why this? Why that? Why is the sky blue? Um, they ask questions that are often very difficult, like that one. Why is the sky blue? Ask a lot of adults that question and they won't actually have a good answer for you. <laughs> so kids come in as a package, I think, almost universally very curious, and they're constantly asking questions. And I think that what ends up separating them is, is a lot of external factors. How do their parents, how do their teachers treat that curiosity? Do they nurture it or do they cut it off? Um, I've seen some parents who will answer questions with irritation. Uh, with annoyance or maybe give unsatisfying answers like, well, because I said so, which is an authoritarian answer, or because that's just how it is, which is a really non-answer. It gives no explanation whatsoever. Versus other parents and teachers who will treat every question as a genuine invitation to learn uh, and provide a, an explanation with full context. And I think that young people who have the benefit of that more nurturing attitude end up being more curious people. And that those, those people will be able to find on their own the knowledge that they're seeking. I think that those who haven't had the benefit of, of the nurturing curiosity uh, perhaps can be inspired by others uh, in their peer group that they see uh, who are passionate about learning and, and perhaps learn from them. There's, there's still hope always, I'd like to believe, or maybe just need to find uh, the right mentors who do nurture that curiosity. So that was kind of a long roving answer to your question. <laughs> um, and I, I hope that it answered it in some way. How can we spark change and inspire curiosity in others? I think that achievement in a particular field is by nature inspiring. I think that we enjoy actually or we should enjoy seeing others excel and achieve and being able to see what someone else has accomplished because they were curious is always a great way to think well i could do i could do something too it may not be in that same field but if i work hard enough 
Uh, and if I try hard enough and learn hard enough, then I can do something as well. Uh, so I certainly think that um, it takes the right mindset to be inspired by uh, others' achievements. And uh, having that mindset uh, of celebrating in the accomplishments of others and, and believing that achievement is possible to oneself is, uh, is the way to go. From a strictly philosophical perspective, what trajectory do you see society heading in, in terms of discourse and disagreement, especially like on the news, we see different groups attacking one another using emotion rather than using logic, right? What, what do you think about that? Could you talk about that for a bit? I think you, again, we're, we're getting onto a very interesting question. And if I were not to put words in your mouth, but based on what you're asking, I think the way you were asking is. What do I think about the status of discourse in uh, the political, philosophical arenas? When you tune into the news, what sort of what appears to be the status of of discourse? Uh, it saddens me to say that it 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 appears that there is less rational discourse going. Um, you see a lot of tribalism. You see a lot of ad hominem attacks. There's a lot of focus that's not particularly on the ideas, but on the people who believe them. Um, there are efforts to smear and denounce those who don't necessarily conform to the uh, prevailing narrative of the day. Uh, it's a lot of focus on, on attacking people instead of the ideas. And if someone doesn't agree, um, with, with the main narrative or, or, you know, whoever it is that's speaking, then they must be a very bad person. And I think that's a real shame. You see a lot of, uh, heated arguments again, that are about the person. And it so quickly devolves into name calling and, and attacking people when it really, it should be about challenging the ideas and it should be about, uh, Focusing on logic and which ideas hold up the best. So, um, my hope for the future, as an optimist, my hope for the future is that the status of rational discourse will change. That um, the focus will become more on the ideas themselves and also the higher level ideas. I think another interesting thing to observe is when you look at political debates and the questions that are asked of the presidential candidates. It's usually policy by policy questions. It's usually, what do you think about um, public education? What do you think about abortion? What do you think about um, this and that policy? What I would like to see is a higher level approach on some of the more abstract principles, uh, which, which would have to do, for example, what do you think is the proper purpose of government? Um, where do you think rights come from? How do you define individual rights? What is your, uh, definition as a candidate of individual rights? And why do you believe that? Those are harder questions, uh, than just asking very concrete policy questions. So to answer your question broadly, I, um, I lament the current state of, of discourse. It, it seems that we have strayed far from rational discourse, but I am, as ever, the optimist that things could that things could get back on track in the future if enough people recognize this problem and, 
uh, and push to see change. So you're a very creative person, and it seems to me like you're very much an advocate for creative thinking and individual thinking. So how do you see artificial intelligence impacting the future of creativity in general? Hmm. That's a great one. Wow. Um, my goodness. <laughs> um, I think the mathematics behind AI is very interesting. Uh, actually, the math has been around for, for quite a while. And it's only just now that we've had the computing power to be able to uh, try it out in application. But some of the language modeling and some of the principles of, of neural networking and machine learning um, have actually been around for quite some time. The, uh, the results that we're seeing so far, chat GPT, for example, are astonishing in many ways. I mean, it's amazing that it's as good as it is. Really, really astonishing. Um, for example, I asked chat GPT recently to write a short story that met certain parameters and it did, it did a remarkable job. I would say did a, about a 14 or 15 year olds, uh, quality, which is amazing coming from a machine. I think that the challenge is going to be finding the right way to uh, synergize between human creativity and, and what AI can uh, help us with. I think that there are still a lot of limitations on AI uh, to be expected. Uh, and, and the big challenge is to kind of figure out what, what really are those limitations? What can we count on it for? And, and what's the best way to work together? I think that as a brainstorming tool, it can be very helpful. My fear is that people and especially young people will use it as a crutch and not be developing the creative skills uh, and language skills and other skills that they that they need to be exercising and building, uh, particularly early in their lives. My fear is that a lot of young people will do this and use it as a crutch. This is not, I don't fault the technology for this. At, at its core, it's, the technology is really a set of algorithms running on a large set of data. Uh, so it's not, I don't blame the technology or the people who created it. Um, as usual, I think it's people who use a technology and it's it's up to them the challenge is to not use it as a crutch to develop uh, the skills that are useful in life early on uh, and then to find the best way to kind of work together with it so and i think that that set of principles applies broadly it applies to social media as well uh smartphones and, and so many other things it's kind of like uh, you're familiar with lazy eye and how people will sometimes have to wear a patch over their good eye so that they force the lazy eye to work and develop the, um, the vision that was, that was lost. Uh, and, and I think that the same thing can happen with lazy brain. <laughs> if people use ChatGPT as a crutch, um, then they can develop this lazy brain. And that, I think, is something to really be aware of and fight against. Uh, I, and I think the best way to fight against it is it needs to come from within. People need to understand the risk of doing that and exercise discipline in their own lives. 
there are, of course, lots of concerns about uh, academic integrity. Uh, it's very difficult to catch someone who's using ChatGPT to help write an essay. Uh, so yeah, there, there's certainly concerns about that. But my greatest concern is that young people will use it too much as a crutch and develop lazy brain when they really should, they need to be putting in the hard work. You need to sit there in front of your computer or your scratch pad or whatever it is and struggle to come up with those original thoughts and original words to express them. You just have to put in that effort to develop the skills. The same thing with anything, with gymnastics, with the sport, with uh, an instrument. You have to sit there and struggle yourself to burn those, those neural pathways in your own brain. And if you don't do that, and if you rely on something else to do it for you, you're just not going to develop those pathways. What is a human mind capable of that there are limitations of right now with artificial intelligence? And do you see that gap being shortened in the future with AI advancing? Hmm. Very, very good question, as, all, as really all your questions are. So basically, what can humans do that AI cannot do? Um, well, there are two ways to look at that. What, what can, there's, there's now the current state of things, what can humans do that AI cannot do? And there's in the future, a, a prediction about what, what sorts of things will AI never be able to do? So I'll start with the easier one first. Um, there are just certain particular areas where it hasn't gotten very far. Music, for example. Um, I've, I've heard a lot of AI technologies touted that can write music and then I've gone in and listened to them. And either the music is very basic uh, in that it just repeats a set of chords over and over, uh, like a lot of pop music does, or it's just not very good and not very interesting. So I, I don't think it's been... I mean, it, it's impressive to see progress and, and I like seeing smart people work on, on tough challenges, but I think it has a long way to go there. Um, linguistically, I'm very impressed, uh, with, with what chat GPT can do. Um, however, I, I think it has a very, very long way to go. I don't know if it will ever be able to achieve this to create an interesting or original theme and then craft a compelling argument around it or story that dramatizes that theme. So that is really tough. Uh, and I think that there's a lot of progress to be there. I don't know if that's something that AI will ever catch up to. Decision-making is, of course, very complex. And I don't think that AI will ever be able to replace or substitute for the human thought that goes into recognizing all the variables in making an important life decision. Some decisions, yes, it could, there could be uses for financial trading uh, and more mathematical decisions. But when it comes to a question of, well, who should my life partner be? Uh, or what am I looking for in terms of career? What sort of things make me happy? These very abstract decisions really, I think, need to come from within and always will need to. Well, the big difference between us and AI is that we have values. We have things that we are actively seeking to gain or keep. 
and it does not. Uh, and, and that is one of the basic uh, differences that leads to a lot of other corollary differences. Um, it, it separates us in some way from animals in that animals do have other values. They're very basic ones like food and shelter uh, and water. But the difference between us and them is that we have to actively think about how we're going to achieve them. Uh, we have to use purposeful goal-directed action, relying on our consciousness to, to get those values. Animals, uh, many of them are conscious. They're not all uh, or living things, I should say. Uh, many of them are conscious and do rely on consciousness, but not necessarily relying on free will or volition to achieve them. They're just more kind of automatic responses to their environment. Humans are quite different in that we really do rely on our free will. In fact, we can actually choose not to pursue our values. We can choose to self-destruct if we want to. <laughs> and very few other living things are capable of that. Uh, I think that there are a few instances, but not in the same way or any, any meaningful similarity uh, in the way it is to humans. So um, there, there are big differences between us and all other living things and big differences between us and AI. Uh, I would like to see a synergy. I would like to see uh, that we can find the best uses for AI. Um, I think that in some way it can open the door for people to spend more time on creative endeavors. Um, so I'm, I'm optimistic, but I do think that there's certain pitfalls. It, it'll be very interesting to see it. Up. So just to sort of summarize all that we've been talking about, could you just give one piece of advice to the audience listening about what you think it takes to live a meaningful life? Certainly. Oh man, it's, it's so hard to pick one. Of course, there, um, there are many great ideas. Uh, I think I would say that it is a good thing to hold your own happiness as your highest moral purpose in your own life. I think that it is a good thing to say, I've just got this short time to be alive. I've just got this little blip in, in the timeline of existence to, to be here. Uh, and I want to make the most of it. And um, I, want to, I want to achieve happiness. So I think that holding one's own happiness as their highest purpose is, uh, is a good thing. And uh, I mean that in a very sort of rational, selfish way. There, there are good ways about going. There are good ways to go about that, and, and not so good ways. I, I mean it in 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 the rational way. So, I, I guess that's that's the one big thing. I know it's a very abstract. <laughs> uh, it's it's not any particular um, secret sauce or trick or habit or anything like that. It, it's a very high level one. But I think that that's the greatest piece of advice I could I could say is, um, we all come into this world with, with so little time. So you're allowed to make the most of it. It's a good thing to want to be happy and to act to be happy. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much, uh, Charlie, for having me. And uh, it's been a real pleasure. I think that you are a very active mind yourself. And it's just a pleasure to talk with people who are active minded, especially so young. I'm I'm impressed by you and your podcast and uh, 
I think you have a bright future ahead. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to subscribe to stay updated for future episodes. My name is Charlie Hubbard, and this has been Professional Profiles.